Hello, this is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Many of us working to make change in the world spend a lot of time thinking about how to break through the noise. Our organizations are struggling to be heard above the din of news, politics, marketing, and everything else that bombards people's eyes and ears all day, every day. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, we'll talk about something completely different, the sound of silence. We'll learn from the authors of a provocative book with powerful lessons we can apply in our personal lives and our professional work. It's called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. The book makes the bold claim that we can repair our world by reclaiming the presence of silence in our lives. Join us for a quiet conversation with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars to learn how you can use the power of silence to achieve great things. Lee and Justin, it's great to have you with us today. Your book is full of fascinating stories. There's the West Wing of the White House, San Quentin's Death Row, I'm picturing silent rainforests in the Pacific Northwest and a heavy metal concert. A lot going on there. Let's start with a story from each of you. What's your favorite example from the book that shows our listeners the power of silence and what that means to you? Doug, we have a friend named Cyrus Habib. And Cyrus was the son of Iranian immigrants to the United States. He survived a life-threatening illness when he was a little kid and went on to become fully blind. He learned Braille and then went to Columbia, Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law School. And then by the time he was in his mid-30s, he was elected lieutenant governor of Washington State. Mm. And then... A couple years ago, when everyone thought he was going to announce running for governor, running for the U.S. Senate, or taking a major position in the administration in D.C., he announced his next step of his career journey would be to take a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a novice Jesuit priest. Frank Bruni in the New York Times said Cyrus's decision was like a politician taking a sledgehammer to own ego. And we walked with Cyrus over time and writing this book about through his, through his decision to do this. And at one level, he explained to us that he knew it would be a big change, of course, to go from writing legislation and, and shepherding major policy changes and, and writing big speeches, delivering big speeches, you know, to sweeping floors and studying ancient monastic philosophy texts. <laughs> but he told us that this whole adventure in egoic obliteration was about being able to tune into truth. It wasn't just about getting beyond the auditory noise of being in politics today, but it was about being able to get beyond the drama and distraction so he could tune into the most valuable and important ways that he could actually serve the common good. And he talked about it a more more fundamental way that, Doug, he wanted to be able to experience his life more, stop living on his phone, stop constantly thinking of what other people were thinking of him, mm-hmm. so that he could become, as he described it, a connoisseur of creation. Having worked with many politicians being based in Washington, D.C., I could see how that would be a big <laughs> life change for many people, although many of us too. And for those who might not have heard terms like egoic 
obliteration before. Um, I know the book, uh, Golden, talks about science and spirituality. It's all woven together. And, and this idea of obliterating the ego, getting the ego, that part of ourself that creates sort of, but which we use to create our sense of selves and distinguish who we are from other people in the world also can fill our heads with all sorts of noise. Um, that's what I hear you saying when you mention that. Is that right? That's a good way to put it, Doug. <laughs> yeah, and again, I don't share this story to recommend that anyone in activism or politics and business do what Cyrus did and run away to monastic life, although he is, <laughs> he is, uh, wouldn't call himself a monk. But the message of what Cyrus has been trying to do is find a new way to serve that's based on a deeper way of perceiving. And as he put it, his answer to dealing with the noise and distraction and distortion in his life was to be able to get beyond the obsession with what other people were thinking of him mm. so that he could really perceive what was needed by the people who need help and by the earth and by the issues he wanted to address. Right. It's not just politicians who get worried or anxious or obsessed with what other people think about them. It's part of our ego's job is to, to do that you know, kind of look for threats to our self-concept, our self-esteem and so forth. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. Lee, what about you? What's your favorite story from the book? I'll definitely zoom in on Jarvis J. Masters, our friend who is on St. Quentin's death row for a crime. The preponderance of evidence shows he did not commit. And we certainly mm -hmm. believe that to be true. Um, back when he was 19, he did commit some crimes that is to break into a Kmart and different things. That's why he was in San Quentin. But later on, uh, he was, that's the piece that he went into uh, death row for that he, he did not commit. So he never argues that he didn't do the first thing, but he definitely didn't do the second thing that he's been on San Quentin's death row for, for so long. So we met him, actually a friend was hearing about our book and she said, you know, I think it's time you meet Jarvis. So Jarvis is in that environment, which is cacophonously loud, steel and cement and mesh wire and all this stuff. And yet, even in that auditorily loud environment, he finds quiet. And that's how he is able to stay sane on death row for a crime he didn't commit is by finding quiet. But he described us as quieting the noise by quieting his response to the noise. So Jarvis helps, he becomes in as a main teacher, helps us dispel this idea that we have to have these pristine circumstances, like running off on retreat for six months in order to find quiet, that we can actually find it, even with very little control over our lives. And for him, it's a, to that extreme level. Like I say, he's in his cell 23 hours out of a day. Right. So right. even still, even in that loud cacophonous environment, even with the unknowns of his appeal and all kinds of factors uh, coming his way, you know, just the day to day um, lack of control over his lighting situation, his water, his everything, you know, um, when he showers, all those things, he still finds pristine quiet. So we focus on this, the locus of control, the sphere of control that he has, and that is really in his responses to the noise. So he takes us on a path for everyone to find that. We stay in close contact. Anyone who wants to know more about him can find out more on freejarvis.org if they want mm. to learn more about him. But he's a profound teacher and here has become a renowned Buddhist teacher and student of Pema Chodron. So many of your listeners may have heard of him over the years. And that uh, phrase from psychology and well-being, locus of control, mm -hmm. kind of we're all looking for that, right? We're all looking yeah. for that sense of 
control or how we find that? Is that what you were referring to there? Absolutely. Where do we have our sphere of control? That in for him again, it's in that his reactions, how he responds, his thoughts, his own practices. Where might we have more influence? And he's a man who actually does have some influence with the the um, folks around him. For example, the different inmates will sometimes protect his writing time. He's a writer. He's written two books in on death row, uh, one of which was picked by Oprah as. Uh, for her book club. So he's become a New York times bestselling author, but mm. other people will, you know, will help like, Hey, no, don't bother Jarvis right now. He's writing, he's focusing, you know, so we can sometimes enroll others to support us in finding our quiet. And then of course, it's really important to know what, what is outside of our sphere of control. What do we need to just let go of and release and not put our focus on so that we can do it, do the work where we can. Yeah, a lot of our listeners are leaders of organizations and social movements or experts in social science or marketing, communications. And yeah, it's a complicated world. People are complicated. Issues are complicated. And being able to really zero in, we call it strategic focus, but it's also sounds like mental clarity and other aspects we're talking about. Well, I should ask about the origin story of the book, actually. What started you on this path of writing a book about silence? You know, Doug, it, it was probably a... Uh feeling that's familiar to you and many listeners, which was just a feeling of despondence about the state of things in the country and the world. What are we going to do about this crazy world? Just that feeling around 2017, <laughs> we were wondering, coming from work and activism, politics, uh, various nonprofit organizations, wondering how we could really make a meaningful and durable positive change. That wouldn't just be subject to, you know, one step forward, one step backwards. And as we contemplated this in, in early 2017, we just both felt the same intuition that a starting place was to get beyond the noise of the modern world, the auditory noise, but also to some degree, the informational noise, if it's possible, the internal noise of the modern world and tune into silence See if we could find the most pristine attention that we could as a prerequisite to really thinking about solutions. So based on this, this intuition we both had about where to look, we wrote an article for Harvard Business Review. First, we thought this might be a little bit of a new agey kind of subject for Harvard Business Review about yep. the power of silence. Yep. But they were really interested in the piece and we wrote it and it went on to be one of the most shared on their website over a two-year period. So we took that as a signal that there was some real interest in this and, and that there was something to explore here. And, and some folks told us to, to consider writing a book. Lee, what would you add to that? Yeah, just that as we did set out, well, we started looking mostly at auditory noise, that which happens in our ears. But when we did take those steps back and reflect upon what was wanting to happen here, what we were going to do, we just decided to dive in with some interviews, asking people of all from all walks of life, artists, politicians, as you know, a man incarcerated on death row, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, uh, whirling dervish, an acoustic engineer, all sorts of people. This question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And it was their answers that really took us on this journey that went far beyond that which happens in our ears into um, deep internal silence, that pristine attention, and also really showed us that we needed to also look at informational noise, that which is the mass proliferation of mental stuff available for us, and that internal chatter, rumination, and concerns about the future and worrying, worrying about the past, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. But they pointed us in this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? 
They pointed us towards births and deaths and moments of awe and moments that were often auditorily loud, like the 4 a.m. mark in an all-night dance party or running the perfect line through roaring rapids. So we got the sense there's a real richness here. So we take great pains to define the noise that we cover, and we'll get into that in a second. There's a great spaciousness to how we treat silence based on all these stories and and responses to our question. Yeah, I want to get into your stories a bit, but you just set up a good segue to a question that was on my mind. You say in the book, silence isn't just the absence of noise. So let's dive right in. What is it then? How do you define it? I think it's first good to get into the meaning of noise there and then get into the meaning of silence. Yeah. You know, we, we talk in the book of noise as unwanted distraction. You know, the unwanted mm-hmm. distraction in our ears, on our screens, and in our heads. The auditory distraction, the informational noise and distortion, and also the ruminative thought, the internal noise. And all this noise can interfere with all of our goals, how we consciously choose to spend our time on this planet. So at one level, yeah, silence is the absence of noise. But we define that not just as the absence of sound. You know, we we love a lot of sound in our lives, the sound of our kids and good conversations like this one and music. But the absence of that unwanted distortion, the absence of that unwanted distraction. And one way we think about that is, as a space where no one's making claims on our consciousness, the place where no one is interfering with our clear perception and our clear intention. But as you alluded to, you know, we look at this, that, that silence is also in the conversations we had with various people, that it also has a level to it, a depth to it, at which silence isn't just the absence of noise, but silence can be this presence unto itself. And this presence is pristine attention. This presence can be a a place of not needing to shape the conversation, of not needing to defend our reputation or point of view, but this place of really wanting to know, wanting to understand what's happening in our world with the people we love, as I mentioned with Cyrus Habib before, to get beyond that mode of performing to other people's expectations and to come into a mode of deeper awareness and service. I'd love to hear how this shows up in the work you two do when you're not writing books and having great conversations like this. You both have really interesting jobs. Lee, you're a collaboration consultant and a leadership coach. You've worked with major universities like Harvard and big businesses like Google and what I think are cool government agencies like NASA, a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. Um, What's an example of how all this has worked into your work doing that kind of leadership and collaboration consulting? Yeah, one of the pieces of work that I most feel feel most proud of having been involved with is these chemists who are trying to get harmful chemicals out of our products and environment on our behalf. And they actually convene cross-sector groups, business sector groups, manufacturers and retailers, government groups that do regulation, advocacy groups, NGOs, and things like that, as well as scientists who are deep in the science of toxic chemicals, which is a super complex problem. 40,000, we'll say, largely unregulated chemicals in our in our products. So they found themselves in such a conundrum that with when they were getting together and just putting a lot of PowerPoints on and 
drowning in data and all these things. They were <laughs> they weren't getting anywhere on this problem. And the 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 essence of this problem is you ban one chemical, the, the, you they tweak a molecule and you get its substitute, yeah. regrettable substitute, um, in its place. So it was like a game of whack a mole. So. Yeah. The, the conveners decided, let's go deep into the forest and think about this differently. And luckily, I was the one to take them there and mm. and to create a situation where there was a lot of open space for hikes and time of reflection. And, and the, these groups that usually don't talk with one another, you know, the manufacturers and the NGOs and the government entities, they had never really been in a, in a, a summit together to start thinking about these problems different, differently. And within that four days, they crafted a class approach, a way to address these chemicals as classes, which has been adapted um, pretty widely and in a bipartisan way as well um, to, for a lot of successful legislation to be passed to help on those on those fronts. Also, it allowed for some businesses to say, oh, that's the problem. I can just stop that. IKEA just said no more PFAS in our stuff. We can control our supply chain. We'll do it. So not getting into the same old, same old of cramming more data and information in, maybe being in cement walls and thinking about these problems in the same way we always have, not opening the space where we can invite in different conversations and take the time to build the relationships so there's some trust so we can um, have those, you know, have those strategy sessions and really address the issues without blame and things like that. So all those things, giving deep space for deep silence, really, we feel created this space for a new strategy, which one which we keep examining on an annual basis. And this will be our 10th year doing that work. Mm. So getting away from the noise for just, you said, four days. Yeah. Gives you mental and, space and opportunity. And not cramming our agendas with all these, you know, all these things, you know, giving a lot of open space for reflection, building in time for people to relate as humans with one another. We stepped up. We don't have Wi-Fi access and things like that blissfully. So yeah. it's really like diversifying how we're coming together. Lots of lots of open space for something. Mm -hmm. This important novel thinking to come through. Yeah, that reminds me of reading about, you know, famous, you know, smart people like Einstein and breakthrough artists and writers of people of all kinds doing sort of, as you said, novel thinking. A lot of them talk about the quiet time that led to that, the, even taking walks. You mentioned the walk in the woods was part of the routine. I was the reading I did showed a, was a big part of the routine of a lot of these names you know of people who made great breakthroughs in science and art and other things was literally just taking quiet walks. Absolutely. And the, the trap or one of the traps here is when it feels really urgent, when it feels life or death, we can speed up instead mm. of slow down. So one of the mottos we, we uh, put into this time is slow down. There isn't much time. And that I'm thinking of the physiological stuff here, calming down your nervous system so exactly. that you can have that part, more creative part of your brain can come out versus when we're stressed by noise and agendas, the stress levels go up and that actually shuts down the creative parts of your brain. That's interesting. Absolutely. The creative parts of each of us individually and the ability to partner with others so that something can come through the relationship as well. Mm. And Justin, you're also a consultant. I love it. 
who describes herself as bridging contemplation and action, which is clearly what we're talking about here. And you've been both a policymaker and a meditation teacher in Congress. I wish I had met you when I worked on Capitol Hill because we could have used use that. Um, trained in economic and psychology at Harvard and Oxford, and you help organizations create and communicate solutions to complex challenges. So how's this, how's silence or any of this showing up in, in the work you're doing? Now, one theme we write about in the book is an ancient Japanese aesthetic principle called ma. And ma means simply the empty space, the space between words and conversation, the space sometimes between notes and music, in traditional Japanese art and even flower arranging, there's this focus on the empty space. And sometimes one definition for ma is that's given that you'll hear is, is pure potentiality. So one thing that Lee and I both like to work with in our work as consultants on political issues and, and solving problems around environmental policy and other areas is to think about how we could bring a little bit more ma to the job. Sometimes that's in a brainstorming session, for example, where you often have the tyranny of the fastest and loudest. If you bring a little bit of ma into that conversation, you might have, you know, use sticky notes for brainstorming rather than a verbal report out, you know, or really take time and spaciousness into the conversation and allow the group to come into the space, absorb the silence and allow the silence in some cases to work with tensions that can be present in the room at times. Um, in the book, one theme we explore also is, is the Quaker principle in meetings of working with silence as a way to do what's called threshing, separating the wheat from the chaff. And silence is often a mechanism to get beyond a situation where people are kind of caught up in that posturing I was talking about before, that performing to other people's expectations. Often in a Quaker business meeting, which is similar to sometimes a, a Quaker meeting for worship where there's a lot of silence, the clerk, the person presiding in that meeting, will call for a little bit of silent time if things get too hot or things are getting away from the real purpose of the meeting. So you mentioned some of the work in, in Congress. You know, over the years I was there, I was legislative director for three members of Congress. Mm. And for a lot of that time, you know, as you know, and most people know, you know, things have really gotten to a place where it's not only too hot, too tense, but many times people are, are have, have veered away from the principles, from the missions that have brought them to that public service work in the first place. Mm. There's a whole lot of distraction. So we saw that work of, of creating a kind of quiet time caucus, teaching meditation on Monday afternoons, mm. bipartisan group, very different kinds of people, but all together there in the silence, just tuning into the silence, working with the nervous system. Yeah, that's really interesting. I trust our listeners who are hearing how practical all this is. Taking the time to be quiet, calm down, actually allows your brain to do the creative problem solving that you need to do versus when you're all amped up, anxious about performing, positioning to get your point across, right? Versus just take a break. And I love the um, this notion of ma before, but the idea of potentiality, let's step back, be quiet and imagine what's possible, which is something that at Hadaway Communications, we, um, our approach we call aspirational communication. And the beginning of every project is sit back, 
no matter what role you have, everybody's going to have the same opportunity to take some moments of silence and then draw what you see as what's as your vision of the potentiality, your aspiration of the future. So it sounds like we're working some ma there without even yeah, knowing that's what we're like tapping it. into. And different channels. Ma to Washington. You are. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. One of the one of the things we wrote about in that Harvard Business Review article was, you know, offering people the opportunity to take a break from one of life's most basic responsibilities, having to think of what to say. <laughs> and basically this idea is is that the answers to some of the biggest personal, communal, even global problems you know, might not be found through more thinking or talking. The answer might be in the open space between the mental stuff. And, you know, as you put it, that aspirational communications that you practice through your work, Doug, I mean, if, if we're too caught up in one particular verbally mediated way of seeing things all the time, then sometimes in, in this day and age, especially, it can be hard to lose the hope. It could be hard to lose sight of the aspiration. So doing this work of calming the nervous system and opening up to new possibilities can be important for tuning into the aspiration too. Interesting, because one of our watchwords about the most effective part of communication starts with listening. <laughs> Being quiet, <laughs> listening, understand others as part of figuring out how to communicate with people. But you're going deeper than that. That's interesting. The Gold in your book straddles the boundaries of science and spirituality, which is clear in the conversation. What's an insider practice that kind of draws on both? Maybe we've already given some of those, but others that come to mind um, that you think listeners would benefit from of practices that straddle that line of science and spirituality. The word nada, you know, in Spanish and Portuguese <coughs> means nothing. Yeah. But in Sanskrit, you know, in the ancient language of India, nada means sound. It means the, the primordial sound of everything, which is like the sound of silence. There's this practice of what's called nada yoga, which is just as simple as listening to nothing in particular, listening to the ringing of your ears, listening to maybe the sound of the breeze, but not any particular you know, music or conversation, just tuning in and listening. And this practice of Nada Yoga is, uh, is really simple. It's something even with no meditation experience, no, not much instruction, and you can just simply take some time and listen. And there's this notion, coming back to, going back to ancient India, that this is a way of clarifying the mind. This is a way of being able to tune into ourselves. A few years back, there was a study at, at Duke Medical School that looked at the effect of various kinds of sound on the mammalian brain. And it was found that it was silence more than classical music or white noise or other sounds that mm. actually stimulated the growth of neurons in the hippocampus, which is the region of the brain that's most associated with memory. And the principal investigator in the study, the professor at, at Duke Medical School, described the core finding by saying that it's the act of trying to hear in silence that activates the brain and promotes neural development. So this, this phrasing of this, this study, the phrasing of this finding in the study is really interesting to us because it really gets to the essence of Nada Yoga, which is trying to hear in the silence. 
not just being in a quiet place and meditating, but actively tuning your ears and paying attention to the silence. Interesting. Yeah, for those who are familiar with yoga, a lot of people picture that as a purely a physical kind of exercise, but yoga, the word itself means connection, connecting to the universe, to the divine, to however you want to think of that. So I see how this fits in to that bigger idea of what yoga means. For those who are wondering what we mean by the mammalian brain, (laughs) we're not talking about the brains of squirrels, but our own brains, which have a reptilian part, these sort of, which we share with the reptilians among a, of the world, uh, which has to do with our response to threat stimuli. And uh, we feel fear and anger, you know, just comes out of what's called the amygdala, part of that most primitive part of our brain, which then through evolution developed many other capacities for connection with others and caring, nurturing, things like that which is referred to as the mammalian brain. Then we have the mm. prefrontal cortex and all other higher order ways of brain function that we homo sapiens are like to think of as our brain. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting stuff. Yeah, I could actually, speaking of the prefrontal cortex, we did we took on neuroscience looking at neuroscience. This is another place where neuroscience, which we thought might be really you know crunchy and hard science, actually started to feel very mystical and spiritual mm. when we dug into those those chapters. So we call it a, a mute button for the mind, that chapter. Mm. And as we look at what neuroscientists are finding about what would could be a mute button for the mind. There's a quote, uh, Mark Leary, I think a psychologist, maybe out of Duke University, I'm forgetting right now, um, said, you know, our, our problems would be solved if we could only find this mute button for the mind. <laughs> and so, well, neuro, neuroscience is looking into what that might be. Is it happening in the prefrontal cortex? Is it through the attentional networks? Um, is it through the default mode network being um, deregulated? Things like that. What, what um, Looking at those studies, which is very new, self-transcendent experiences, STEs as a cross-disciplinary area of of science, looking at the similarity between flow states, where we Mm -hmm. commonly experience this experience of of quiet, internal quiet, and connection with something larger. So we're both smaller and larger at the same time in a way that, that seems to be quite enjoyable for people all over the world. The similarities between flow states, mystical experiences that can happen spontaneously, um, experiences that happen through meditation sometimes, um, moments of awe where we just take in some something, some grandeur, and we feel a, another diminishment of self. There's a theme here, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yet, a, and yet, a, um, a large, largening of self. You know, we may feel connected to nature, to God, to others, whatever. So that whole area of scientific study feels very connected to this to the spiritual world all kinds of um, wisdom traditions have been exploring those areas as well so they didn't feel as distinct as we thought they might when we really dug into it and it's a, a, a truly energizing place to be learning and growing yeah so interesting really a golden age of learning about the brain these tools are relatively brand new and we're learning so much brain scientists are learning a lot and in some places catching up with the contemplative traditions of the world that have been observing the mind for thousands of years and it does bring yeah and this does bring me back to sort of what you all said at the beginning where you all started wanting to change the world and finding that some of the 
more powerful tools and techniques that we're talking about here are really about starting with ourselves. What sort of a parting piece of advice or tip each of you would have? I'll share an idea that we got from someone who really is quite a visionary, um, the acoustic ecologist, Gordon Hempton, who is someone who's been cataloging the endangered natural sounds of the world before Mm -hmm. they're developed and destroyed. And Gordon, who's just this gregarious, brilliant, iconoclastic kind of character, told us that he has this practice that whenever his to-do list gets too long, he takes his to-do list on a hike. And what that means is he'll go to the furthest place he can get from his home in about a day. You know, for him living in the Seattle area, that's um, Olympic National Park, the whole rainforest. And he'll get to the quietest place that he can get. And then he'll really tune into the silence once he's there. And then once he feels that he's really quieted himself in this quiet place in nature, he'll pull out his to-do list. And he told us that recently... He crossed off so many pages of items from his to-do list that he was able to eliminate five or six months of professional commitments from his life because things that seemed important from the vantage point of his desk were from the vantage point of the silence, immersed in nature, really not all that important for what he wanted to achieve, for what he really valued in his life. So you don't have to go too far away, but if you can, take your to-do list on a little hike. (laughs) Love that. Lee? Yeah. One of the things we emphasize in the book is that while we can do a lot of our practices alone and we usually start there and have the most control there, it's also great to do these as teams and as organizations or in partnerships or even freelance people kind of partnering up to do the work. So going a little deeper into uh, Ma on the job to really think about what is the default here in your organization? And what, you know, do we default to interruption in our open office plan? If I see that person, I can interrupt them or instant messaging and expecting instant uh, responses. Can we, can we mix that up? Can we get experimental and try some different things? Do we need to always default to a one hour meeting where we don't even have a second to get to the next one hour meeting and all these things? Can we tighten up what our agenda is really there for, build in some of quiet reflection, even just taking a minute to focus on why we're meeting right now? What is the purpose of this meeting? So that we really use that time well. And and could it be less than 60 minutes? That would be lovely you know, to really examine oh, yeah. those defaults, you mm-hmm. know, and to give time for preparation, true preparation, centering, listening, um, also not defaulting to the tyranny of the fastest and loudest that Justin pointed out so that we're hearing from the quieter voices in our groups, the maybe the ones who are more kinesthetic or slower to respond, not because they're slower, but because they process differently. Um, And also the quieter voices in ourselves, the ones that may be thinking something that feels a little edgy, but that might exactly be what this group needs to, to break through and to do something a little different. So getting experimental and really inviting in more mom to the job. Ma on the jaw. That's so great. There's a lot to talk about the power of silence, but we'll leave it there with some great insights and ideas for listeners. I can see why from this conversation, the book says silence can help with your physical health, mental clarity, even ecological sustainability and vibrant communities. The book is Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Lee Mars and Justin Zorn, thank you very much. Thanks, Doug. 
Thanks, Doug. Good to be with you, my friend. 